0: and welcome to Actions for Nature In this episode we're talking about how to take less for nature So what do we mean by taking less for nature? Have you ever noticed litter, pointless packaging or waste? Maybe you've struggled to find the right way to recycle something or been frustrated by not being able to borrow an item Maybe you've bought something you later realise you don't really need In this episode, we're talking to people who are actively trying to reduce their personal impact on the natural world and making it easier for us to do the same. Every product you buy or activity you take part in draws some kind of resource from the natural world, big or small. So by taking small steps to reduce what you consume, you can make a big difference that adds up over time. You might even save some money along the way. There's a powerful quote I want to share with you. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. This idea of understanding consumption as a form of borrowing is the current to Patrick Bulmer's career at Bristol Water, the UK's oldest water company. The water we drink flows through us and returns to the water cycle, shifting between lakes, clouds and raining onto the depths of the ocean. Understanding this movement is a key part of Patrick's role. Bristol Water taps into this cycle, momentarily guiding and purifying water so that we're able to pour it safely into our lives. And this, Patrick reminds us...
1: Actually, is pretty amazing. Around water waste, it's an unusual one because it's not necessarily the thing that people think about. There's a couple of things around wasting water that are important. The first is that there are times when water is actually pretty scarce in the environment. Now, all of a, a water supply system is designed so that even when you're in a drought, there is actually still some water left and, and available. But broadly speaking, the more water you're able to leave in the environment, the better it is for the environment. It's a complicated thing because that environment includes things like lakes and reservoirs that actually wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the fact that that there was a demand for water. And those those reservoirs, if you look at something like Chew Valley Lake or Blagdon Lake, these are nationally and internationally important sites for wildlife. But the water that flows into them, the water that's held in them, the water that flows out of them, is all an intrinsic important part of the, the support of the environment. People talk a lot about the UK being a wet country, and certainly this May has been... Uh, We've had about three times the normal rainfall this May, and I'm sick of it. But the UK is not a wet country, and it's, it's actually something that's really difficult to communicate. The UK is a fairly cool country, which means that we are, you know, not very cold, not very hot. Rains every week, but not a lot. See, that's my little poem. And the environment that we have is dependent on the fact that it's always a bit drizzly one way or another. Even in the peak of summer, you can expect that in a week or so's time, yeah, it might rain a bit. So taking water from that environment where it's actually in quite a fine balance, where you don't tend to get these massive surges of water and then suddenly a, a total absence of water, you know, all the oak trees, ash trees, the grasslands, the wildlife that live around those, they're dependent on it being slightly cool and fairly damp all the time so when when you take water from that environment you do actually have an impact and it's a difficult one to to get people to believe it's true but it really is but there is another one that perhaps is a bit more surprising to people which is the fact that water has got a carbon footprint now something like six percent of that carbon footprint is in terms of the carbon footprint of getting the water to you Because we get through, Bristol Water supplies about 100 million tonnes of water per year. And that takes a huge amount of energy. Generating that energy gets through carbon. And so part of your own personal carbon footprint is the fact that you're going to a tap and turning it on. In fact, the other 94% is what you then do with it. Because when you heat water that takes a huge amount of energy to get the water hot enough for a shower, hot enough for a bath, hot enough to cook veg. And because of that, you're using, you're burning your way through carbon by doing that. So the less water you're able to use, and particularly the less hot water that you use, then the lower your carbon footprint will be. Now, we'd never say to people, don't use water, but not wasting water is a big thing. I think that taking less to reduce your environmental footprint, there are things you can do that are free that you can use in your own plumbing system that will help a bit. I think one of the most important things, actually, is to check that you haven't got any leaks on your plumbing. We're at the point where the leakage on Bristol Water's pipes, so the pipes that are owned by Bristol Water and operated, the ones that go under the roads that's now actually less than the leakage in people's houses and and the pipes running through the gardens. So what we really need to start reaching out to people about now is the leaks that you've got inside your own houses. So if you've got a water meter, this is actually a really easy one to check out. So you go and find your water meter in its little burrow, lever the lid off, uh, then go back inside and realise you need a torch. And Then have a really good look at it when nobody's using water in the house and there's a little spinny thing in the middle of the meter. If that spinny thing is turning around and you know nobody's using any water, then you've probably got a leak. It might not be very big. It could just be that you've left a tap dripping. But if that's left dripping all the time, it gets through an enormous amount of water it can actually get through more water than you use per day. It's just because it's running all the time and it's only a little bit, you don't really think it's true. So that's my big message is check out the leaks that you might have in your house. The other simple one is go onto the Bristol Water website and see if you can get yourself some free water efficiency equipment. So that's easy things to do with your plumbing system that can make a really big difference to your own waste footprint.
0: It's not just our water waste that has an impact. And Gwen Frost, Head of Innovation and Sustainability at Bristol Waste, knows that well. Bristol Waste is our local authority-owned collection company that collects all waste and recycling from householders in Bristol, as well as providing street cleaning. The goal is to make Bristol a cleaner and greener city. And Gwen is helping us adapt to waste nothing.
2: So at the moment in Bristol, what we really see is that there needs to be a focus on the element of consumption, how much we consume and therefore what we do with it next. So what we do is obviously we collect your recycling on a weekly basis and by separating it into its materials, we manage to recycle it in the highest quality. So we will separate all of our materials where they'll be reprocessed as much as we can in the UK. But what we really want to do ultimately is support our residents to change behaviour and to waste nothing. That's thinking about what you buy, how you're going to use it and what you're going to do with it once you've finished it. And that starts from how you go shopping or what materials and what products you buy when you go shopping and then how you maximise use out of it and minimise its impact on the environment. So at the moment, the average householder still has about 40% of what's in the black waste, general waste bin, is still recyclable in terms of what we collect at the curbside. So out of that 40%, about 25% is made up of food waste that again can be recycled to produce energy and gas for Bristol, as well as a a composting conditioner for soil. And then the other 15% of that 40% is all of the other materials. So plastics and cans, glass is pretty good, but plastic and cans, a lot of card. So it's really to maximise what we already collect, your bin could be very much halved in its contents. The financial and environmental impact merely of wasting food, and it's not the fact that we don't collect it all. It's the fact that it was all produced somewhere, all packaged, all transported, all moved around and it's a global issue. You know, we, I think we're at about 60% UK that w- of what we consume is produced in the UK. So that other 40% is is a global market. You know, the packaging required the fossil fuel that's needed to air freight it or, or ship it across continents. That has a massive impact as well as the packaging that we use in the UK and have to deal with at the other end so that's the food but it's similar to all other material you know everything else that we have so you know be it cleaning products or whatever everything that we bring into our household or you know washing machines and printers you know invariably some consumables are so cheap now that the natural reaction is to replace them and not to repair them And we're at Bristol, we have a reuse shop over in Avonmouth and we're looking to open others. But we also support the repair cafes throughout Bristol. So there are multiple options before you just replace a broken product with a new product. You know, the number of televisions that we get that are still working, but they're last seasons or somebody wants a bigger and a better one. So they just naturally throw them away. Whereas actually, you know, there is a network that can enable them to be reused. And it's just thinking about those things as well. So try and think about, well, if you don't want something anymore, somebody else probably does want it. about how you buy and what you buy and to a certain extent you know what people don't want to do going forward I suppose is to shop in loads of different places because of the pressures of time but actually if you just consider what you're buying and how you're buying it you know when you don't want the fruit and the vegetables and the plastic that it's coming in invariably there's probably a loose solution or there's then the question of do you need it So yes, you can reduce your footprint by the way you shop, the way you buy things, whether you bulk buy things, there's a lot of co-ops that kind of you can bulk buy things, so you get less packaging in that front. And to understand what you need to do as well is sometimes you kind of look at the waste that you generate over a week or two weekly period, and then you can start seeing sort of trends of going, oh, I've got loads of this type of material, and then whether it's crisp packets or you know those are uh, squeezy pouches so if it's the squeezy pouches for example was well is there another method of buying that product that's not in the squeezy pouch you know does it come in a jar or a tin versus a squeezy pouch well if you know that you can manage and recycle or reuse that other glass jar or tin then it's probably a more sustainable way of living than having the squeezy pouch because invariably that has to be disposed of in general waste and can't be recycled at the moment.
0: For those of us wanting to cut down on our waste, it can feel overwhelming. Gwen speaks to the power of just starting somewhere, wherever, of beginning a journey of sustainable consumption. There's no map and the path looks very different for each of us. For Laura Montgomery, her story starts with a broken kettle. Four years ago, when her kettle broke, Laura felt frustrated at not being able to mend it without tools. And so she founded Share and Repair. At first, it was a series of repair cafes that brought the community together through sharing tools. Now, it's a charity with up to 150 volunteers providing practical solutions for people, offering alternatives to buying new. Laura tells us about her work.
3: By mending it rather than ending it, we're saving items from landfill and we're preventing more production of more items because it lasts on the planet longer. And then by borrowing rather than buying, we've got the opportunity to reduce manufacturing and we're saving people space, we're saving people time and energy. So the, the borrow rather than buys is also a great way for people to actually try an item out. So, for example, they may think that they want a Nutribullet, but would they actually use it? So they can come and borrow one and for a week or two weeks and then say, wow, this is amazing, but actually it's not for me. And save that cupboard space of so many items that we all have, toasty makers, bread makers, that people bought on a whim and they they go into a cupboard or into the attic because it's too nice to throw away, but it just stays there. So that's how we, at the moment, reduce waste. We are also employing skills of people who otherwise they might not be using them. So a lot of our repairers are retired, some of them aren't, and their skills are often redundant. So in a way, we're saving the waste of their skills. Our first venture of repair cafes took place in Bath. And from that one, we started to develop them in other areas around Bath. At the same time, I wanted to start a sharing scheme because I believe that we all have too many items. We don't all need to own the lawnmower, the hedge trimmer, the pressure washer. And so people could share them. I mean, ideally, in the end, I'd love to see every community sharing, having a a, a base of items that they can share. But in the meantime, we have a library of things we have over 400 items and people donate the items. We check them and we repair them if necessary and we pat test them so that they're safe for use. Our other example of reusing items is our kit project. And this is a new project which we started because of the pandemic and, and realizing that we had too much material. But it's a way of of getting small electrical appliances and people bring in their kettles, irons and toasters or the like, and we check they're okay. And they go out to a family who are starting up a new home who are on a very, very low income. And we do this through our partner charities such as Julian House Genesis, DHI. So we are recycling items in that way as well. And that project is called HomeKit. One of the organisations that we're involved with and we partner with is called Restart. They have been campaigning for the right to repair. And when we left the European Union, Europe was already on target to encourage manufacturers to actually have items that will last longer have spare parts and make sure that they, you know, they have the guarantee for, say, 10 years. So the first thing that happened was that we supported Restart in the campaign to get the government to sign the first right to repair. And as a result of that, some of the manufacturers now have to, like, wash, but only on big things like washing machines and so on, they have to have a guarantee for 10 years and provide the spare parts, which is a great start, but it doesn't go far enough. So at the moment, we're encouraging people to sign up the petition on, right. if you just Google right to repair, then people can sign that. And we're saying, let's extend that to more items. are always looking for new repairers who can do sewing, who are electronic or mechanical engineers. And we need people to meet and greet. We need people to bake cakes. And we have a whole list, and they're all on our website. So people can go on to the website, which is shareandrepair.org.uk, and they can look in our Get Involved section, We obviously always need money because it costs us money to be in the shop, even though we don't have to pay the rent. We have to pay the utility bills. We have to pay parts. We have marketing costs and so on uh, to spread the word. So there's, there's lots and lots of ways that people can help us. And we are really, really keen to hear from people who might be able to do so.
0: Spoke about the strength of community. It's the power of over 150 volunteers giving their time to share and repair. It's the generosity behind the tools being gifted. It's forming partnerships to strengthen campaigns and movements. Collaboration is at the core of overcoming barriers to sustainable consumption. And someone who knows this well is Zoe Robinson. Zoe is a freelance writer, editor, and consultant working in sustainable fashion. She also advocates for visible mending, which she'll tell us about. She was inspired to create the good wardrobe after recognizing the challenges that prevent us from accessing sustainable fashion. It's an award-winning online community hub and was created as a welcoming space of shared learning. Laura tells us about disrupting fast fashion.
4: There are many issues in waste in the fashion industry um, at every stage of the supply chain. I would say one of the the most um, relevant ones for us as citizens and and for producers, in fact, is that the fashion industry has been for some time a linear system. Clothes are produced; they're not made to last anymore. So when we're finished with them, whether that's after one wear, as is the case with a lot of people, or whether that's after you know fifty wears, they're not generally made to be repaired. In the way that they used to be, or even altered, you know that's obviously a problem because the quality is poorer. They don't last as long. When we find we might want to alter a seam to take a garment out, there isn't enough seam in there. The fabric isn't isn't strong enough. Um, so there were lots of issues. We, you know, children's clothes the the knees aren't reinforced. So producers have a lot of work to do to try and make to try and make clothes. They have a responsibility, I think, to sell and make clothes that are made to last. And another issue connected to that is that we've lost the skills to repair and to be creative with our clothes that maybe we did, uh, perhaps our parents or grandparents had when something is deemed no longer fashionable, which happens very quickly these days because the, the fashion cycle is so quick that, you know, in the past, say back in the 70s, people were a lot more creative with how they would rework a garment or, you know, add to it, embellish or that kind of thing. We, as So many of us don't know how to do that anymore. If something breaks, we don't know how to mend a zip or sew up a hem. We might grab some kind of visible bonding and give it a quick iron to, to stick our trouser leg up. But these are not long-term solutions. About eight years ago, I founded The Good Wardrobe, which is an online community hub. And the idea behind that was to make it as easy as possible for people to dress more consciously. That encompasses looking at where and how to shop more mindfully, So the kinds of shops we can go to, how we can do that, how to repair. Um, and if we can't do it ourselves or find someone to help us, it's trying to show people alternatives to what, what's quite a wasteful system. Those are the kind of primary areas that the Good Wardrobe works on. And more personally, I've become much more interested over recent years in concept of visible mending, which is a lot of people describe as a kind of revolutionary act by mending something very visibly rather than being ashamed that our clothes have been mended we're going, you know, I've repaired this. Look, it's here for all to see. Yeah. And it's it's kind of fighting against the, the system, which is saying clothes, they're only made to last yeah. a short time and then be essentially thrown away. So we're going, no, they're not going to be thrown away. We're going to repair them and, you know, be proud of it. It's like a badge of honour. There's a few practical steps that people can take to reduce their fashion footprint to take less I would say first of all if you think you're going shopping make a list of what you need go back and check your wardrobe to see if you really need it and if you do maybe think about swapping with someone else can you hire can you find a friend who can lend you something rather than going out and buying if you do need something try and buy secondhand whether that's online or a charity shop or vintage If you still need something and you can't find it in any of those places, then have a look for brands who either have a very sustainable approach, if that's something that's available to you and you can afford. I appreciate that um, a lot of sustainable brands can be more expensive than the high street. If you are shopping on the high street, look for garments that are kind of made to last and try and learn to identify what that means. So, you know, check the seams. Are they strong? Is the fabric very sheer and Does it look like it won't last very long? Are the hems well sewn up? There are lots of kind of telltale signs that if you start learning about it, you'll you'll get a sense of what that means and learn to recognise, I suppose, connected to that, whether you think someone something can be mended and think about where you might mend that, what you will do with that garment at the end of its life if you're buying it for a one-off event. Can you pass it on Will someone else want it? And just some kind of points to consider as well. Well, I've already touched on this, I suppose, but Livia Fur, who is a founder of EcoAge and the Green Carpet Challenge, she founded or co-founded 30Wears, 30 30Wears 30 hashtag, which is really, a, I suppose, a prompt to encourage people to say, if, they, if they're thinking of buying something, will I wear this 30 times? If you won't, don't buy it. You know, do you really love it? If any of you out there have read Mary Kondo's book about tidying, and one of her kind of ideas is to think... Um, when you're clearing out your wardrobe or shopping, does it spark joy? And that might feel a bit cheesy to think about, but actually when you're in a shop looking at something, oh, do I like this? Does it spark joy? Does it really make me feel good? Or am I buying it kind of because I think I need something or I just want to buy something?
0: Zoe spoke about repair lessons, the transformational power of education. I love how she talked about loud, visible mending as a way of liberating us from shame. Hearing these experts, sustainability doesn't have to be a narrative of reduction and loss. It can be about the abundance of opportunities we create when we consume more mindfully. Learning how to mend our broken items, our clothes, our kettles, our plumbing, disrupts the fast pace of capitalism. This theme of slowness is threaded throughout the conversations, We have more time and space for connection when we consume at a slower pace and when we shift from seeing our finite resources as disposable and instead recognise their value. It's here in the slowness where we collectively thrive, where we learn together, where long-term change is in motion.
1: You've been listening to the Take Less episode of Actions for Nature. The guest speakers were Patrick Boomer, Gwen Frost, Laura Montgomery and Zoe Robinson. The podcast was narrated by Ella Trudgeon and edited by Kazia Wenham Kenyon. And the music was produced by Ketsa, brought to you by Bristol Natural History Consortium. You can check out the rest of the Festival of Nature celebrations by heading to www.festivalofnature.org.uk or by following the hashtag Best of Nature 21.